Welcome to In Their Words, a podcast on history, teaching, and the power of primary documents from Teaching American History. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Jeremy Gipton. I'm one of the teacher program managers for Teaching American History. And I'm here with Ray Tyler, my colleague, who is also a teacher programs manager. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in this episode talking about our new podcast series called In Their Words. Anyway, so we thought that it would be useful to teach your listeners to this new series to know a little bit about us, where we're coming from, since we're the, the hosts to this series. Ray, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? That is, what you did in the classroom and then how you came into this position as a, a TPM for teaching American history. And then I'll provide a little bit of the same. And then we can go into talking about the series itself. Okay. Thanks, Jeremy. I, I'm really excited about working with you, by the way, on this project and collaborating with you and, and the others on, on the In Their Words podcast. Yeah, I had a strange career in teaching. I taught in the early 80s for three years and then uh, got out like a lot of young teachers. Frankly, I wasn't very good at it. I um, wasn't so much money, but I wasn't continuing to learn. And that's an important part of my story with TAH, I think. Uh, when I came back into the classroom uh, about 10 years ago, I knew one of the things I wanted to do was continue to develop my knowledge of American history and American government. And um, so I was teaching in a charter school in Rock Hill, South Carolina. It was a brand new school. And I was looking around for ways to I could continue to learn about history just for my own self-interest and self-gratification. And I stumbled into teaching American history's Master's in American History and Government program. And this is way back in 2010. And I went up to Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio, and took one course in the founding with Gordon Lloyd and Chris Burkett. And I really loved it. It was on campus, uh, which was all the classes were at that time. And you were enmeshed in the history, enmeshed in the, in the geekiness of talking with colleagues at lunch, at uh, dinner, late night in the dorm rooms. And it was just, it, my boys, my son started to call it dad's summer camp after that first year. And, and I loved it. And, um, so I knew that was going to feed the passion so much so that I didn't even bother to check my grade until that following December. And when I was thinking about taking another class, I said, I guess I might as well check my grade. It didn't, the grade didn't matter. It was icing on the case. Well, I continued to take a few courses here and there, online classes when they became available, fortunate enough to win the James Madison Fellowship in South Carolina in 2014. And that covered the cost of the uh, finishing the program, and I finished the program in 2016. And then I, I was fully thinking that I would retire at this school, York Preparatory Academy. And then this opening came up, and I had been doing some um, hosting as an Ashbrook ambassador for uh, for Michelle Hubenschmidt, our colleague who works out of Florida. And uh, I had been participating in some multi-day seminars as a teacher. And this opportunity came up and I put in for it and was selected. And uh, I still miss the classroom. I still miss, I was energized by the, by the young folks. I was in a really good situation. I was beginning to teach the younger siblings of kids that I taught that first came through the school, knew the families well. So I still miss that, but I do enjoy the, uh, 
the constant exposure to primary sources. I walk out of one of our one day seminars when we've been talking about serious historical concepts and topics and questions and debates. And I walk out of there thinking, I can't believe they paid me to do this. <laughs> Don't say that too loud. Maybe I shouldn't no, no, say no, that on a, recorded, on a recorded program, Jeremy. But uh, it, it's just an amazing opportunity to promote the use of primary sources in the classroom. That fed my passion. Hopefully, what I'm doing will help feed someone else's passion a little bit. You know, it's interesting. You and I have got a lot of overlap, if not in the specific details, then I think in the our view of the, the call it the twist and turns of, of career. You know, I, I was um, I got an education degree in the 90s uh, in social studies education, and I spent a couple years working outside of education and in the I was in the army for a number of years. And then when I got out, came back to my home in Tucson and uh, uh, took a job teaching. I taught for 11 years, uh, 10 of which were at, at the high school level, mainly American government and, and then a, a, a good amount of American history. But I kind of moved up to the 12th grade level and, and, uh, and taught primarily government and then dual enrollment, things like that. And I remember, and it's funny because I had several student teachers during those years um, in the latter portion of those years. And one of the things that I would always wait for with my student teachers was, you know, a couple of weeks in to their time teaching, they would, they would have this like shocked look on their face that they recognized that they knew nothing, that their, their, their coursework, their undergraduate history coursework had not prepared them, especially for, well, world history as well, but in American history, they, they thought they knew the, like the call it the foundation of the narrative, and then they also thought that they had like, you know, knowledge in depth in, you know, certain areas where they had taken uh, like higher level courses in, but they just, they just didn't know, you know, what they were talking about. And I remember always having to explain to these people, like, don't worry, this is a, this is a long-term process for you. Uh, you will develop over, over time. But one of the things that always nagged at me was this idea that, you know, documents are good and documents are, documents are the place to learn from original sources. And that was not something that I had any background in. I hadn't learned from original sources as an undergrad. I, I do have a master's in history, but not from uh, Ashland. But mine is in kind of a niche area. I have a master's in military history. And I did read some documents in that during that program and started to recognize, like, how do you go about constructing a knowledge and an understanding of history through original sources, because I mean, essentially, you know, secondary sources are, are, are pre-processed and canned for you, for better or for worse. And so over my years, I, I, don't know if I, I feel like I kind of fumbled and stumbled a lot uh, into trying to find more, learn more from documents, and then incorporate more into the classroom. I moved out of the classroom and worked in curriculum and admin for a couple of years, and then found my way into this position in, uh, in 2014. I think that, you know, we're both in this position where we recognize, you know, that documents are documents are a terrific way to help students learn all kinds of things, not just learn the call it the, the content of history, the story of history. But, you know, you've I, I've listened to this in some of the interviews that you've done thus far. Students reading ability and writing ability can can grow so much when they're exposed to original documents and, and the work that they have to put in to be able to decode 
make sense of and construct some meaning and understanding based on those. So I'm completely sold, uh, obviously, on original documents. And it's exciting, too. I, I got the same, I'm in the same situation as you. You, you come out of a, a program, you know, where one of us is in the back of the room. And you go, oh, my gosh, I, I wish I could use this with students. I learned something new. I'd never heard of that document or I never understood if you put these two or three documents together, you know, where you see tension or something like that. It's just really fascinating. So I've, I have found, and I've seen this in teachers that I've worked with around the country that this approach is great for students for a variety of reasons, but I think it's also great for teachers because, you know, one of the things I used to tell folks, one of the challenges of teaching is that you could teach for 30 years or you could teach the same year 30 times. And there is a bit of a, at least I felt it where I taught, there's, there's a bit of a, of a pressure to just make your plans and stick with them. And, and, you know, like lather, rinse, repeat. And I think, unfortunately, that, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to reinvent the wheel every year. But on the other hand, there's a, there's a degree to which that, I think, numbs the mind. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's very important. You have to continue to grow. It's an intellectual exercise, teaching and learning. And I think you either are growing or you're stagnant. Or I don't know if you can even stagnate. I think you're growing or declining is, would be my gut feeling. Yeah, I think rest is rust. You can't just sit still. You've, you've got to keep learning and you have to keep challenging yourself to keep yourself fresh. And I think you said something really important when you're talking about the other aspect, academic aspects of dealing with primary source documents. It's not just learning the history because, you know, frankly, the high school t- student needs some secondary sources of some kind sure. for the context. So they don't they don't know everything that happened prior to Lincoln's inauguration, for example, on March 4th, 1861. And so they need some context before they deal with that very difficult uh, inaugural address. Absolutely. And then my goal, I would tell my students, every, the ideal class, every student reads a challenging text carefully and closely, speaks about it and writes about it every day. Now it was rare that that happened every single day, you know, for every sure. single student, but that was always my kind of my baseline that I was looking for to challenge them with text, because if they're thinking and reading closely, they're improving their academic skills, whether they're dealing with science, the text, math text, I don't know, I'm not a math person, but certainly science, uh, language arts, related arts, they are improving their academic capabilities and um, to analyze close and read closely. And they're seeing the value of reading closely. I don't think some of my students realized how, how important it might be to read something twice or three times or four times or talk about it. And, and the documents do that because even for people who know the history, like you and I do, some of these documents, particularly if it's like 18th century writing and stuff, and you say, my God, what is they trying to say right here? It's difficult. It's challenging. I don't, so, you know what? I, I don't think a lot of people, and I, I'm not blaming folks for this. I, I know that I was in this position as a teacher earlier in my career in the classroom, but I don't think many people give serious thought to the idea of, you know, you have to return to this. It's like exercise. You can't, I've said this, you know, umpteen times. You, you can't just go to the gym once for eight hours and be like, well, I'm done for the next four months. 
you have to return to the same exercises and then mix some of them up in order to maintain and make gains and, and keep yourself healthy. You have to do that. Why don't we do that mentally? Why don't we do that intellectually? I mean, I think a piece of it is, you know, the, the, the foot race that a, a, a one year American history course is, but you know, where you can find that or rather make that time to come back to something and, and, and as Michelle would say, ruminate on it, spend some time (laughs) thinking about it, I think is essential. And here's, here's where, you know, this is to the listener, the point of this podcast series, and we will publish two interviews per month. We're going to interview teachers in the teaching American history network. That is teachers who are in the mag program, the Master of Arts in American History and Government, graduates of the MAG program, attendees to our one-day and multi-day seminars, teachers from across the country teaching in as diverse a selection of schools and communities and subjects within the, the you know, American history, government, and civics world. And we're going to talk to these people about their teaching experience. And we're going to talk to them about their use of documents and how they've they've evolved and developed as a teacher in relation to that. And our goal is that each of these programs, each of these episodes rather, will give you a sense of there are other people out there who are striving for what I'm striving for. And here are some nuggets of, of wisdom and maybe some practical ideas and specific documents. We're going to talk to teachers about documents that they use in their classroom so that these individual episodes are not only interesting from the standpoint of learning about, to an extent, I guess you'd say someone like you, but also coming away with something actionable, a document you might have not heard of, or maybe a technique for helping students do that close read that you just mentioned, Ray, or or something like that. How do you get them to learn it? So I want to, as we, we move forward, we start to wrap up our discussion here. I'd like to talk about what document or documents, if there's actually, let's just go with one each, maybe a sample document that a lot of teachers haven't heard of, but you think would be especially useful in a classroom. Do you have one in mind? Yeah, I do. You know, um, when I think about documents, I usually have a favorite per time period or for per error or whatever. Uh, Absolutely. Perhaps my favorite for the antebellum era uh, is uh, Thomas Jefferson's letter to John Holmes, written on April 22nd, 1820. So, and he's writing at the height of the Missouri debate, whether Missouri should come into the Union as a slave state or a free state. And then, and what results, of course, is, is taught in every high school classroom, the great Missouri Compromise. And um, Missouri comes in as a slave state, Maine is a free state, the balance in the U.S. Senate is, is maintained and um, it kind of to some degree kicks the can down the road about what to do with slavery. But what I like about the document, one, it's, it's relatively short. So students respond well to that. They don't, a student who might be a reluctant reader doesn't throw up their hands because of the length, the sheer length of a document. But in a very short and very eloquent at Jefferson being Jefferson way, he gets at the major issues of why slavery kept the issue of abolition and slavery kept getting kicked down the road. He deals with the issue of, of should there be compensation for the slave owners if emancipation happens. He deals with the belief that, or the assumption at the time, 
is that uh, whites and blacks could not live next door to one another, that there would have to be some kind of uh, expatriation is the word he uses in the letter. And he deals with the, uh, the understanding this was already happening in, in many states, as I recall, that emancipation would have to be gradual. You couldn't just have emancipate everybody at midnight on a given day. That The assumption at the time was it would have to be gradual. And the thing I like about uh, students uh, dealing with this letter, they begin to see, th- th- they, they come prepared to scorn the morality of enslaving people. That They get that. I mean, that's so obvious that this is an unethical, immoral thing to do to own and buy and sell other human beings. You don't have to really deal with that. You do have to get the people, uh, the students, I think, in the shoes of the people at the time. So how do we go about emancipation? Is it just simply you know, set everybody free? Or are there issues that must be thought about? Uh, and Jefferson brings that. And then we can challenge his assumptions. Could blacks and whites live together? We now know that we think they can. Uh, would compensation be required? You know, would it have to be gradual? Are those assumptions valid? But at least they can get a, a feel for, oh, they were operating from these assumptions that uh, emancipation would have to be gradual, there'd have to be compensation, and there'd have to be expatriation. And then they begin to get a better feel for why it seemed to be an insurmountable problem to the people at the time. Uh, and it took a, you know this horrific carnage of the 1860s before, and several you know, Reconstruction Amendments before it really becomes to an end. Yeah, and the hard thing about it too, the hard thing for him and them at that time is that there are certain, I think there's a, there's a moral dimension to this that is crystal clear. Right. That's the, maybe call it the what, but the how is tremendously complex. And I I find that one of the things that students, because they're younger, I mean, we, we, we are, we could say we we are born equal, but we're not born complete. (laughs) Uh, And, and education is what exists in various forms to help move us towards some form of completion, or at least call it like proficiency as human beings. Students are able to grasp things that are clear, but nuance and complexity is is really difficult to grasp. And the idea that how do you achieve this is tremendously complex. And we see Jefferson talk about that and others. We see Lincoln talk about that decades later. And Jefferson in this puts right out there, here here are these big problems. And I've seen students react to that and and they start to recognize, wow, this is a lot more complex than it it seems. Yeah, there's even more. uh, I agree, it's a lot more complex, but there's even more. You know, he talks about the Missouri question being like a fire bell in the night. Yep. He said, I considered it once a nail of the Union. So here he is saying in 1820 that the Union might fall apart over this issue, and it nearly does 40 years later. And one of the really compelling parts of it, and this is more like amateur psychology here, he said, I regret that I am now to die in the belief that the useless sacrifice of themselves by the generation of 1776 to acquire self-government and happiness to their country is to be thrown away by the unwise and unworthy passions of their sons. His only consolation is I will not live to weep over it. He expects 
the union, he, he almost in the final paragraph expects the union to fall apart. Yeah. And, and his only uh, comforting idea is that he'll be dead. Yeah, it, it's there's a lot in that. You know, I'm going to throw out mine really quickly. My my choice here, uh, a recommendation, and I think this is one that probably gets overlooked, is Federalist One. I agree. Uh, I would always use the first paragraph. Federalist One. Now, uh, I, I one of our scholars, Dr. Jeremy Bailey of the University of Houston, uh, said to me once that, in, and he's a big Federalist Papers scholar, and he said that the, the the language of the Federalist Papers is challenging, but the ideas in the Federalist Papers are not. And so once you pierce the, the veil of the language, the ideas that they are discussing are actually really clear. And I think that Federalist One does this in does this really, really well by laying out what's at stake, what's going on here, what are we trying to accomplish? And the line that I would use, can we have government, can men have government based on deliberation and choice instead of accident and force? How can we as humans work together to build and maintain good government as we define it? Can we do that cooperatively or at the end of the day, is it really just destined to fall apart? And, you know, the the group with the biggest clubs or guns or loudest voices or something like that are just going to beat the others into submission. Can we have government by deliberation and choice or must it be accident and I think that last word force is really operative here. And I, I love the fact that it's it's clear. I think that it enables you to get into the Federalist discussion uh, a little easier than jumping into the typical two of Federalist 10 and 51. And that it really sets up, I think, this, this issue that can never be solved. And we as Americans have to just keep working at and keep asking ourselves about. Uh, this this whole idea of how can we build good government and what is it it founded in? I think that's something, a, a question rather, that you could return to again and again in an American history class. And obviously you can return to again and again in a government or civics class. And like you said, it's it, it's not that long. You could excerpt the first paragraph or two and, and make the point. I agree that I would always use that first paragraph. He goes on in Federalist One, you know, kind of lays out what they're going to do in the series of essays. Yep. So I, I often didn't use that, but that first paragraph, reflection, choice, accident, and force. The, the idea there too, and you you touched on this, I think, is that there's an obligation of American citizenry, a responsibility that we are always engaged in reflection and choice. If it's going to work, if self-government is going to work, it has to work for each American that in each generation, we like to say it, but in, in reality, each American alive at every moment in their life, there, there's a constant requirement to reflect and, and choose. Uh, you can choose not to participate, but it's going to impact you. If you decide to be passive, if you decide to stay uninformed and inactive, others will fill that void. And they may not be people and they, they may not champion ideas that you agree with. We really don't have a choice. It's like treading water in the middle of the ocean. You know, you, you can't just tread water and stay in place. The currents are going to take you somewhere. So you might as well pick a direction and start swimming. Right. Anyway, what we're hoping here is that in this, uh, this short episode that we've done here, that y- you get a sense of who we are. Uh, and you get a sense of what this series is going to be about. And again, 
what we hope that you will come away with from each episode is a sense of another teacher in another place, but probably facing similar challenges and, and issues as you, and some of their ideas of instructionally, and then also a document or two that they've used so that you have something practical to come away with from the episode and say, oh, hey, I could go look at this document and maybe use it. I'm, I'm coming to that topic in about two months. This is something worth looking at because I've got an idea of it. And what we will do in all of these episodes is we will provide links in the show notes to the documents mentioned so that you can go look at them on the website. As for format, Ray and I will trade off interview duties. That is, I will interview a person, Ray will interview a person. We won't be working together on this, but we'll be working asynchronously on the the program. And so each of the episodes will vary back and forth between him or me, but doing essentially the same thing with these, these teachers in our network. And we'll also at times point to specific resources on the website or program related resources where you can learn more about what we're talking about. And I would just add, Jeremy, that we're inviting listeners to join us in the conversation. You know, we're having a conversation with individual teachers. We can't talk to everybody, but we we very much believe that the best way to learn about history is a conversation with the primary source documents. And uh, so we invite you to join the conversation as a listener and then down the road as the, as the one-day seminars, the multi-day seminars, or get involved with our master's program and join us the conversation because there is a community of teachers out there like us that are, that are trying to uh, continue the conversation about serious topics dealing with American history and with American government. I agree completely. And I think that's a great point on which to wrap this up. Thanks, Jeremy. Ray, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your, your insight and thoughts on that Jefferson letter and in general. The first formal episode of In Their Words will roll out on October 14th. We'll actually be putting that in a new podcast stream separate from our existing We the Teachers webinar-based podcasts. We are going to take an episode, though, and put it out through the existing podcast stream as a sample. And then before the 14th of October, through the blog and through our emails, social media, we will put out the new subscription URL so that you can subscribe to that through whatever podcast system you use. So again, thanks for listening. We hope you have a good teaching day. We look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you for joining us for In Their Words. Learn more about Teaching American History's free library of primary documents, professional development programs, and master's degrees at tah.org.